Welcome back to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, here for the uh, second segment. Uh, really fast, if you have any questions, comments, or need show information, you can go to www.laborlawradio.com, all one word. You can call us toll-free, 888-678-7229. Haven't done callers on the show in the past because a lot of the questions people ask aren't really germane to putting on the uh, putting on the air. It's kind of got to be generic, and a lot of people have specific stuff. So uh, phone calls don't always work, but you can send us an email. We can uh, you know edit it and sort of extract the, uh, uh, the meat of the question and answer it on the air. Uh, but um, in any case, that's why we don't have a, a bunch of callers on the show. Where we're picking up from last, the first half hour of the show, is we're still talking about independent contractors. Uh, I'm going to try to go through the rest of the, the list here of the attributes that are used to determine whether a person is working as an independent contractor or an employee. I should have prefaced the whole discussion with this is a critical determination because employees are covered by the labor law and all the provisions of the labor law. So overtime, rest breaks, meal breaks, expense reimbursements, uh, you know, getting your vacation paid on termination, all of the provisions of the labor law apply to employees. If you're an independent contractor, absolutely no provisions of the labor code apply to you. No overtime, um, no waiting time penalties. If they don't pay your wages on leaving, well, if you're an independent contractor, they're not called wages. They're just called accounts receivable. You can sue them in court, but there's no attorney's fees provisions for that. So, you know, you're going to have a hard time if it's not a large sum of money and, uh, you know, they want to put up a fight about it. So a lot harder to get your, your money if you're an independent contractor. You can't go to the labor board. Labor board can't hear your case. Labor board can only hear California labor law cases and independent contractors don't fall under California labor law. So very important determination. In this case we're talking about, this recent case, the FedEx case, the key thing was expense reimbursements that the FedEx drivers were basically paying for a lot of the expenses in delivering uh, these, uh, you know, the FedEx packages or delivering packages for FedEx, and they were suing for reimbursement, and FedEx was defending by saying that they were independent contractors. We're gonna we're on number three in the list, and three is the skill required. The more skilled your profession, the more likely it is going to be to be an independent contractor. Again, we talked about this, you know, in in number two. Uh, where you know doctors, lawyers, accountants, tax preparers, things like that, are more likely to be seen as independent contractors than employees. But obviously, a lot of doctors are employees of a hospital. A lot of attorneys are employees of uh, of a company. It's not the end all, be all of uh, of what your determination is. So, an attorney like me, I work for a bunch of different clients. I would be an independent contractor to them. I'm not their employee, but defense counsel. The, uh, the bad guys, they generally work for a law firm, and that law firm is their employer. Uh, I have attorneys that work for me. They are uh, my employees. Uh, even though they might be your independent contractors, they are employees of, of me. So, um, so even if you are skilled, it's not the end-all, be-all uh, determination of these. None of these factors are. The courts say you have to look at it as a whole, and that's why I sort of preface this with the uh, looks like a duck, acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, because ultimately, that's what it's going to come down to. You know, does this person look like an employee? And if they do, let's fit it into these these eight characteristics that the courts have handed down and see 
how we can prove that they're an employee. So anyway, skilled required. The more skilled, the more likely you are to be an independent contractor. Uh, the next uh, attribute is whether the principal or worker supplies the instrumentalities, tools, and place of work. So a lot of that is more for you know, mechanical things where you work as a machinist or you, and you're, you're providing some type of tools. Uh, you know, attorneys, I mean, what tools do I have? I just show up with my, uh, show up with my brain. Well, I guess I uh, supply that tool. Um, defense attorneys usually don't, so I, I guess they might be independent contractors. Just, just kidding. Um, so, you know, in, in the case of FedEx, the truck drivers had actually purchased their own trucks. That's what makes this particular case interesting because, generally speaking, sort of when you run a little mini business and you provide your own tools and other items of the business, you're, it's much more of an independent contractor type of arrangement. And in FedEx, these employees would buy these trucks that you know, would range up to $50,000. So it was an interesting, uh, an interesting case, but there was also a lot of facts that led it led the court to believe that they were employees. For instance, they had to paint it with the FedEx logo and put the FedEx logo on the truck. So it wasn't like they were just using their own, uh, you know, delivery service, slapping Michael Tracy uh, speedy delivery on the side. They had to paint FedEx on it, and they had to run FedEx routes, and they had to uh, have FedEx packages in, in the back of the truck. So, again, no one of these things is going to be a dispositive that is determinative of the ultimate outcome of whether you're an employee or not. But, uh, you know, that one can weigh heavily. It also relates to uh, some of the other ones in here that we're going to get to. Uh, number five, the length of time for which the services are to be performed. That is, employees, while generally at will and they can be terminated at any time for any reason, generally have longer relationships with the employer. So if this is something where, you know, you're just mowing somebody's lawn for, you know, the weekend or something like that, that's a very short period of time not likely to create an employment relationship. Good example, tax preparers, they may, you know, do a lot of work for you over a period of a couple weeks around April 15th, but after that, you're never going to see them for another year. Much more ind indicative of a, uh, you know, independent contractor relationship versus if you have an accountant that, you know, works for you 20 hours a week, every single week, and he's been working that way for the last four years, that would be much more indicative of a employee relationship. So uh, the next one is the method of payment, whether by time or by the job. This one has really been critical in a lot of truck driver cases. Uh, in the FedEx case, it, it was very critical as well. Um, but ultimately, in a lot of truck driver cases, people own their own trucks and they're paid by the job. That is, you know, you haul this product, I'm going to pay you a fixed amount no matter how long it takes you. And if you own your own truck and you're sort of operating your own mini business, and you're paid by the job, then it's much more likely that you're going to be seen as an independent contractor, and there's been a whole string of cases like that for various truck drivers. The big difference in this case is that they were essentially paid by the hour. Uh, so anytime you have somebody paid by the hour, that is much more indicative of an employee relationship because you're not giving them complete control over you know, how long it's going to take them and, and how to do it. You're essentially saying, you know, do this and, and we're going to pay you for every hour that you're working for me. And that is much more indicative of an employee relationship. Um, you know, the next one is whether the work is part of the principal's regular business. Like I said, in this case, FedEx delivers package. You're delivering packages, a much more indicative of an employee relationship. 
Uh, the next, uh, the final one is whether the parties believe they are creating an employee employer relationship. This one is not that used by the courts. Frequently, you know, I've got an independent contractor case right now. There's a, they signed an agreement at the beginning that says we are creating an independent contractor relationship. Well, that's not going to be determinative in the case. What the employees, you know, sign, if they sign, they say they're an independent contractor, that's not really going to be relevant. The courts have said that it's one small factor, but we're going to look at the overall picture. And again, if the overall picture looks like it's an employee-employer relationship, then the fact that they signed some, you know, contrived piece of paper that says, well, you're an independent contractor, I'm not going to withhold taxes, you're not going to get overtime, uh, therefore, it must be, that's not the case. If, if that were the case, uh, well, I'll, I'd lose a lot of my cases, but, um, you know, it would just make it very easy for employers to get around all the labor laws by simply having everybody sign a piece of paper that said they were an independent contractor. So just because that would make it so trivial to defeat every single labor law passed by Congress and by the state of California, um, courts aren't too likely to uh, to read something into that. And, and in the FedEx case, they actually had this very elaborate contract that described that they were independent contractors and what their, you know, duties were to purchase this stuff and how they had to maintain their own insurance and stuff like that. So in FedEx, it was an interesting case because there were so many factors in favor of ruling as an independent contractor, and yet both the trial court and the appellate court ruled in favor of the employees and, uh, you know, said that they were that they were employees. So a sad note from the FedEx case that personally, you know, affects me and should, uh, you know, make you upset as well, is that the uh, trial court had awarded $12 million in attorney's fees in that case, and apparently the appellate court felt that, that was too much, that they had to reduce the $12 million in attorney's fees. They didn't say exactly how much they had to uh, reduce it by, but unfortunately... Um, the attorney's going to make less than $12 million, which gets us into our next segment. That's all that we're going to talk about on uh, independent contractors. And we will see, as we talk about class actions in the next segment, why you get these cases where attorneys are getting $12 million to, uh, to handle a case. And we'll talk about how that sort of drives some of the economics of class actions. But before we get to that, this is an overview. We're going to start with arbitrations. A lot of people have arbitration agreements and want to know how it's going to affect them. The next one we're going to get into is class actions. You know, you get a case like the FedEx case. Uh, worked out well. I mean, employees were determined to be employees, and they uh, did receive some compensation for that. Um, I think, I mean, I just uh, this case just came out, and I read through it, but I uh, didn't make notes on it for exactly how much the employees got. I believe it's about $5 million total compensation that the employees got and uh, the attorney got uh, was initially awarded $12 million. So in class actions, we'll talk about how they're driven and how the economics of them make a lot of people unhappy. Maybe they don't work as well as they should. Um, and we'll talk about why that is. Now, the next one is collective actions. Very different. I think a very useful tool, unfortunately, it, it not always that effective, and we'll talk about why, but they're essentially a different flavor of class action. Finally, we're going to talk about new type of law, private attorney general. Very interesting. This so far has been working fairly effectively, and 
you know, I'll sort of talk about some of my successes there, as well as some of the successes of other practitioners out there who have, have uh, had these published cases and the courts of appeals have uh, handed down favorable decisions for employees and how I think that's going to help labor law in California going forward. So in any case, getting back to our starting point on arbitration. First of all, what is arbitration? Arbitration is where two parties say, we don't like the hassle of litigation. We don't want to go to court. We think it would be better to hire a private judge. Do away with all these formalities of pleadings and motions and objections and this, that, the other thing. Let's just sit down with this private individual. Let him hear both sides. Let him make up his own mind. And then issue a final binding, non-appealable decision. One guy. No jury. Juries are too much of a hassle. We just want one guy. Sits there. Hears both sides. Makes a fair decision. That's arbitration. Now, you might wonder why, you know, Western jurisprudence has evolved these complex court systems and pleadings and objections and juries and all of this stuff if the simple, fairest way to do it all along was simply to sit down in a room with one guy and let him hear your case. Well, a lot of things work well in arbitration because you don't need all those procedural safeguards. Uh, you know, having one guy hear your case may indeed work in a lot of uh, situations, and in a lot of cases, it doesn't work. So in any case, that's what arbitration is. You waive your right to jury trial, you don't get a jury. You don't even get a judge, you don't get to appeal. Now, you can appeal some arbitration awards, but it's a losing proposition. So technically, yes, there are some instances where you can appeal from an arbitration award, but in general... Uh, you know, it's, it's such limited circumstances, I, I don't really want to get into all the technicalities of it, but the arbitrator basically has to have abandoned all type of legal reasoning and simply just be making it up as he goes along, and then you might be able to uh, overturn that on appeal. But very, very rare to overturn an arbitration award on appeal. Most people don't waste their time with it. So generally, I just say it's it's non-appealable, but technically you, there there are things you can't appeal. So that's the basics of arbitration. And there are arbitration agreements that provide that you can appeal it to another arbitrator. So if you, if you have one arbitrator, they can, you know, you can write whatever you want into your arbitration agreement. I'd even seen one where it was if, we, uh, if you lost at essentially the first level of arbitrator, then you would get a panel of three arbitrators that would hear your appeal, which was very much like the, uh, you know, the appellate system in California. Here you get one judge at uh, trial. You get ruled against, uh, cases thrown out. You appeal it to the appellate court where three judges sit on a panel and hear your case and make a decision from there. So they had constructed this rather elaborate arbitration agreement, and that did have an appeal provision. We uh, really like that one, and we'll get into why. Sometimes I really like arbitration agreements, and sometimes I really hate arbitration agreements. So um, when do I really like arbitration agreements? When do I think they help my clients, uh, help the employees out. I like arbitration agreements for the vast majority of wage and hour cases, unpaid overtime, meal breaks, um, anything like that, any of the technicalities of the labor law, I like arbitration agreements. The reason I like arbitration agreements are the rules relating to who pays for arbitration. Now, arbitration is very, very expensive. You have this private judge. Usually, he's a retired judge, 
uh, from the Superior Court or District Court or something like that. And generally, they charge somewhere between $300 and $500, uh, maybe $600 an hour. The last arbitrator we just picked was $575 an hour, very qualified, uh, very uh, well-respected uh, retired judge. So the law is in California that for an employment arbitration agreement, the employee can be required to pay no more than he would if he brought it in court. Generally, your court filing fee is $320. So this arbitrator is going to cost $500 an hour. You know, every motion that you do, he's going to, you know, take four hours to read it or, you know, have your oral arguments and this and that, charge you eight hours, of, you know, basically for a day. So $500 an hour, eight hours, um, 4000 bucks every time you have a day with the arbitrator. Uh, if, if you go to a trial, you know, the uh, I'll call it trial, but it's just if you go to, to final arbitration where you, you present all your witnesses and everything like that, let's say that takes a week. Uh, 4000 bucks a day times five days, $20,000 that the defendant employer is going to have to pay to arbitrate this case. Now, if it's a minimum wage case uh, or an unpaid overtime case, uh, minimum wage cases probably aren't going to take a week of arbitration. But an unpaid overtime could take, you know, three, five, seven, eight, ten days, depending on how complex uh, the issues are. So, you know, especially if, it, if, if it's a rather clear-cut labor violation it's going to cost the employer a lot of money to pay that arbitrator. Uh, if it's not a clear cut and it takes even more time, it's going to cost them even more. We're in a high-tech case right now. They uh, compelled us to arbitration. I told the defense attorney, do not compel this to arbitration. You do not want this in arbitration. It's going to cost you guys a fortune, and I'd really rather you pay me and, and my client, got to pay my client too, rather than paying the arbitrator. But if you'd rather pay the arbitrator, this thing's going to cost you a fortune. No, no, no. We're going to win our motion to compel. Well, you're right. You're going to win your motion to compel, but you're going to regret it later. So now we're in arbitration, and guess what? They regret it. They're filing all sorts of motions to get the thing thrown out, and this thing's not arbitratable, and that thing's not arbitratable, and we can't talk about this, and we can't talk about that. Oh, well, you're the one that wanted to move it to arbitration. Now, I just want to talk about everything that happened with his employment. They don't want to talk about too much. Well, be, and they're basically saying I'm, you know, what am I, you know, blackmailing them or holding them over a barrel or uh, all sorts of bad things they say about me. But that's the procedural avenue that they chose to take. They chose to take arbitration. And, of course, I'm going to use that form to help my client out. So... Not that we're you know we're bringing frivolous motions or dragging out the the uh, dragging out the process and that yeah, it would waste my time. There's no reason to do that and it's it well it's unethical too. So but it is using the procedural framework that you're given to your maximum advantage. And the reality is is that for arbitration agreements, the employer is going to have to pay for it. And even if they prevail, they're they're stuck pay, paying those costs. So from an economic point of view. It gives you a lot of leverage because even if your case is 50-50 and nothing in the legal world is, I mean, you know, is a 50-50, is my case 60-80? I mean, you never know how a judge is going to rule. I mean, you think he's on your side, you think he's listening to you, and then he comes out with a decision. And like, Where did this thing come from? So you can have some pretty good ideas, but, but nobody on the planet can tell you this is a slam dunk case. This is a sure thing, uh, largely because, I mean, if the defense attorney is defending it, I mean... The defense attorneys aren't stupid. They're usually very, very sophisticated, very, very smart, 
And one thing they hate is losing. Defense attorneys hate losing. So if they're going to take this thing to trial or take it all the way to arbitration, they think they're going to win. Now, you may think you're going to win as well, but that's two reasonable people who have a very different opinion about the outcome of this litigation or this arbitration. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's never going to go all the way. If, you know, if the defendant knows he's going to lose, chances are he's going to settle out. Uh, it's much cheaper. Now, thank goodness for all these stupid defendants that actually want to litigate it all the way out because they are attorney's fees cases and the attorneys make a lot more money when it goes all the way to trial. Uh, so fortunately, there are a couple of these people out there that, that do want to push things all the way. Otherwise, I would never uh, get any trial experience because the, uh, the stuff would settle. So in any case, that's, uh, that's arbitration, and that's when I like it. Now, when don't I like arbitration? I don't like arbitration for wrongful termination cases, um, anything that's going to require some degree of publicity in order to better help my clients. Now, arbitration is private. Um, you can't uh, disclose a lot of stuff going on there. You're not going to get a lot of publicity about it, uh, you know, versus, you know, filing a class action case. You can, you know, get some publicity. Uh, use that to educate the public, you know, bring in, you know, pressure against the employer to comply with the labor law. Uh, you don't want to have, uh, you know, especially if the company's a high-profile company, they don't want to be seen as involved in a uh, labor law uh, lawsuit, uh, and especially losing a labor law lawsuit, uh, especially for things like unpaid minimum wage and overtime, uh, they're just not good publicity gimmicks for a company to uh, to lose on. So arbitration does protect the company in that way, even if it is going to cost them a lot of money, maybe that uh, money is better spent than paying their PR firm to deal with the adverse publicity of a public uh, court action. Also have one company using it very effectively. They're a security contractor. And, you know, they have so many, you know, top secret contracts and everything that their employees do. It just would be a nightmare for them to bring their stuff into a court where it is a little bit more public. So it is very expensive for them. That's just they view it as a cost of doing business uh, and they use it very effectively. So it, it, it can work even doing a wage and hour case there. You know, it, it makes perfect sense for me why they wanted it in arbitration and works better for me as well because I don't have to worry about uh, what's confidential, what's not, everything's confidential, we're not disclosing anything, makes it a little bit easier for me. So there are, there are cases for wage and hour, it does work out uh, for both sides. Um, but in the other cases, you know, the big problem with uh, arbitration is the rules of discovery. And discovery is a, your ability to get information from the other side. In general, it's a lot easier in court to get all of the information that you need in discovery, the arbitrators aren't, you know, in arbitration with discovery, the arbitrators aren't always willing to, you know, force the other side to, to give you the information that they need. The procedures are not always well spelled out. If there's a well-drafted arbitration agreement, uh, you, a lot of the well-drafted ones simply say, we're going to follow California's uh, code of civil procedure. And it's just like court, except it's a private judge. That that's a fair arbitration agreement. I like those types of arbitration agreements. It's easier to deal with. Unfortunately, it doesn't really save the litigants any time or hassle. I mean, you still have to do depositions. You still have to do pleadings. You still have to follow all of the, the formal procedures of court. The only difference is that the judge is retired and you don't get a jury. Good for the attorneys. I like that. But the clients are often left scratching their heads saying, 
well, I thought arbitration was supposed to be easier. I thought it was supposed to be more efficient. Well, it, it's, it's not. Frequently, arbitration takes just as long, if not longer, than, uh, than your court case. So anytime when you need a lot of information from the defendant, arbitration is probably not going to be your best friend. In court, you can get all of that stuff, but in arbitration, it's usually a little bit more difficult to to acquire it. Now, in wage and hour cases, unpaid overtime and things like that, generally, the employees have a lot of the information. They know what their job duties were. They know what they were working. The only thing we really need are some time records. If they have time records, we can produce those, you know, get them to produce them. If they don't have time records, you know, you look at parking records, you can look at security uh a sign-in and sign-out sheet. You look at emails. You look at all sorts of other things to establish uh, how long people were working. But that's really the only issue in there. What were they doing and how long were they doing it for? That's a wage and hour case. You don't need a tremendous amount of information from the other side. Wrongful termination, you know, sexual harassment, very difficult to... Uh, you need a lot of information because it's not just going to be he said, she said. Um, you're not going to win on that. You've got to have some type of uh, corroborating evidence and getting that out, especially, you know, I mean, if it's sexual harassment or it was direct sexual harassment, somebody said, you know, uh, go out on a date with me or I'm going to fire you and then they fire you, uh, that's that's pretty easy. Uh, but a lot of the times it's more this hostile work environment, sort of the pervasive atmosphere in there, and you need to get access to a lot of employees. You need to see what was followed up with in the, the company's investigation of the incident and things like that. Um, you know, so it just you need a lot more information in those cases. It takes a lot more to get and is harder to get out of out of arbitration. So that's, uh, you know, that's sort of, you know, some of the pluses and minuses to arbitration. You know, ultimately what happens very much like a court of law come uh, come trial day or arbitration day, uh, you come into a, a room, you're going to get sworn in. It's going to be uh, generally uh, there's going to be a court reporter there, but there doesn't have to be. Um, you know, arbitration can be done off the record. And, you know, you're going to present your evidence and uh, say what you're going to say, and then that's it. The arbitrator is going to go away and take, uh, they always seem to take forever. They say, oh, I'll have this doing in a couple days. Yeah. A couple, I don't know how long a couple is, apparently more when you're a retired judge. But uh, usually takes them longer than you expect. So in any case, that's it for arbitration. I wanted to get into class actions, collective actions, private attorney general, but I'm not going to have time today. So as usual, because I've been gone so long, I had so much to uh, to share with you coming back. With uh, I also wanted to give you kind of an update on some of these more uh, public cases that I have. I always have to uh, get the client's permission, though. So I have to make sure that what I say on the, uh, even though they are public records, um, and not, I'm not allowed to uh, adversely, not adverse, I'm not allowed to overly publicize these cases without the uh, client's permission. So sometimes the client doesn't give me permission, and I can only talk about these things in the in the abstract. So anyway, next week, I do want to talk about class actions, why attorneys love them and plaintiffs, you know, employees generally don't work out so well and what's being done to fix that collective actions, private attorney general actions. So we'll pick up that next week as long uh, with another status update and uh, some more labor uh, information. So we will see you, uh, see you next week. Thanks for listening. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement of the law office of Michael Tracy, not meant to be legal advice, and does not serve to establish an attorney-client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are also swear or not guarantees of any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California.